Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. And this is Shelly Nelson. Welcome to the Innovation and Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. We're very excited to be talking with Eric Foster today. Eric has been a CIO at two different companies, an IT executive on a CIO's leadership team at three others, and he originally started off in consulting. He's had the opportunity to work in a variety of industries, work on a lot of different teams, and he's experienced a wide range of corporate cultures. He's on the podcast today to talk about high-performing teams. And Eric, why did you want to talk about high-performing teams today? Well, I think the reason it's important to talk about high-performance teams is that we live in a world where companies are constantly needing to adapt to a changing environment, and the pace keeps getting faster. And to meet that pace, it's essential for teams to have the ability to work very well together. And yet it seems that leaders expect teams to work well together without much effort. And so I thought it'd be interesting to talk about some of my experiences with teams and some actions that leaders can take to maximize the impact of their team. High-performance teams is a term that's used a lot. What exactly does it mean to you? Well, to me, it's really about teams realizing their full potential and delivering outstanding results. And uh, I think many times you have teams that are made up of great talent but it's individual talent and it may not always work as well together as it could. And I think of an example from the 2004 Olympics. Some of you may recall that the highly favored U.S. Olympics team was expected to beat uh, the team from Puerto Rico. And the U.S. team was stacked with all-stars on an individual player-by-player basis. They were the better team, but in the end, they didn't win. And the uh, other team that worked better as a cohesive unit ended up prevailing, even though they were the underdog. So from my point of view, it just takes a lot of ongoing intentional work to create great teams like that. And as I said before, it doesn't happen on its own. An analogy that also comes to mind when I think about cultivating great teamwork is um, thinking about the beautiful yards here in Chicago. So it's a great time of the season here. Uh, And as you drive by maybe some of the big homes in the neighborhoods, uh, you might notice those beautiful yards. Uh, If you think about how they got to be that way, they usually started with a professional design done by a landscape architect that laid out how it would all fit together. And then to keep it looking great, they have to do the ongoing maintenance, the fertilizing and cutting of the grass, the pruning of the bushes, the pulling of the weeds. And I think it's the same kind of thing with teams. Uh, You need to constantly cultivate the good things and weed out the bad. That's a really interesting analogy, Eric. Um, Curious, what are some of the ways you can improve the effectiveness of a team? So I've been lucky, I guess, in some circumstances to have teams that just have kind of come together and you've had great chemistry and great results. But I was introduced to a framework uh, about five years ago around building high performance teams that I think brings a much more structured approach and gives tangible actions that people can take uh, to improve the health of a team. And that framework had basically three major elements to it. Uh, And those three elements were clarity, accountability, and course correction. And we used this framework as a team to look at how we were doing. And so we held a series of facilitated workshops with the leadership team where we could assess ourselves against basically 10 different areas that were in those three categories and identify gaps that needed to be worked on. And it's my experience that teams 
it's fairly rare for them to pause and to look at ways they can improve and how they're working together and consciously take action. We all get caught up in the rush and the busyness of our projects and the urgency of deadlines that it's difficult, I think, for teams to pause and reflect and to see how they're doing. Creating that space and having a structure to do that really helps change people's attitudes and to perceive things the way they are versus maybe the way they might want them to be. Eric, you mentioned clarity. I'm interested to hear what that means to you. Uh, in our organization, we use the term vision a lot, like setting a vision, understanding where we're going. I'm wondering, is, that, is there a lot of overlap in that concept or you know, what did you mean by, by clarity? Yeah, thanks for asking to, to um, add to that one. Uh, clarity really covers a multitude of things and it's kind of a foundational category. But when I talk about clarity, it's having the team really f- evaluate how well they understand the vision that they're trying to reach. Um, do they have uh, agreement on the near-term objectives they must meet? Are the roles and responsibilities of the various team members clear for each person? And even whether they have the right people on the team, sometimes you have teams where things might be clear structurally, but actually you might be missing some skills in the people that are part of the team. And then lastly, do they understand how decisions get made so that they can work that process effectively? And these things are probably kind of obvious to people, but when a new team is formed, usually you have an opportunity to set these parts up and to really think about how the team should work together. But I've found that with established teams, you tend to kind of jump into things. And sometimes you go past these things faster than you should. And it's not uncommon to find uh, team members that have different understandings of the vision, maybe conflicting goals or underperforming team members. And so having teams really spend the time to create clarity of what they want to accomplish and how they will do it is really an essential part of their success. What about accountability? What does that include? Yeah. So accountability, I think, is kind of intuitive to most people. And most people would say, yeah, we have that and we cover that in our teams. But what we did is we looked at really kind of three different dimensions around accountability. So the first one, of course, is the accountability to an individual team member's own goals. And that usually comes fairly naturally to most people. But then really looking at how accountable are people to the team's goals and are people pulling together for the things that have to be done together. And then a really important attitude dimension is whether the teams are willing to prioritize the success of their team over themselves and at times be willing to sacrifice their goals or their individual success for the benefit of the team. And what I found interesting about reflecting on this category of accountability is it really gets the team members to express how well they are doing with each other. And I think it's not uncommon to find that there may be one member of the team or one part of the team that feels another part is letting them down. And getting people to understand these interdependencies and the hotspots and then getting them committed to each other really helps to reduce these problems. And I think you said the third point was course correction. Is that about adapting as a team moves forward? Yeah, exactly. As we all know, things don't stand still. Objectives need to change. Different obstacles may appear along the way. And so teams have to be able to change. But I think even more so, it's about how teams deal with uh, the conflict that comes along. And I think we probably all know it's too idealistic to expect teams to operate without any conflict. So when it does come, you want the team to handle it well. And From my experience, the great teams that I've worked with have been the ones that can get the issues on the table and are able to work with each other to resolve them in a really constructive way. And a key part in my experience has been creating that opportunity for a team to to stop and to reflect and to talk about how they're doing in all the other areas I mentioned and to bring up the points where they're maybe struggling with some issues of conflict 
And to help facilitate that kind of dialogue, we used a very simple tactic where we'd have leaders pair up with each other. And then those two leaders would conversation, have conversations on what's working well, what's not, and what they can improve on. And we would try to pair people up intentionally where we knew there was probably some underlying issues that they needed to work on to make sure that um, really they got to the bottom of it and found the best ways to work together. Eric, that's really great stuff. I, you know, there's a concept that I, I kind of go back to frequently about hockey, right? I'm a big hockey fan, didn't play in any like competitive level, but there's something very special about hockey and the fact that there is a, a locker room. Teams play on the ice, they learn how to play together, but teams are made in the locker room. And it sounds like one of the things that you've seen, and I'm, I'm using it in my vernacular, uh, is are these offsites, the hockey room, right? The locker room where, where you're able to really think about how we did in the game, build rapport, build connection, build the, the real relationship that's going to create better performance on the ice. Yeah, I think that's a great analogy. And like you said, it's really like reviewing the tape after the play to see how you've done, what you could do better, and drive that continuous improvement. The other part, which I didn't talk too much about, but also is important, is having people share a little bit more about who they are as, as an individual, as a person, so that you can get a little bit deeper about what makes that person tick, what's important to them, and so that you can all just relate to each other on a better level. And that's kind of a foundational element of really building trust within teams, which is extremely important as well. As you know, in the IT world, external service providers, contractors, and partners are, are usually part of, of any team, right? You've got to bring in people who have specific skills, uh, specific experiences. Nobody's got the right people at the right time to, to fill out a team. So, Eric, I'm, I'm just wondering, how do you think about integrating your vendors into your organization and teams? All right. Thanks for asking about internal and external resources. And um, before I comment on that, I was reflecting as I was thinking about our conversation today, just about the importance of teams, especially around technology initiatives. And if you think about what it takes to deliver a solution, we're all working with really the same fundamental building blocks. Our competitors have access really to the same technology components that we do. And so what really makes the big difference is the teams and the people who are deploying and building the solutions. And as you said, teams are going to be made of internal and external resources. And I've seen a lot of different environments. And I'll say some environments work um, hard to integrate all the team members, regardless of which badge they may be carrying. And others tend to look at the external resources as maybe being a little more disposable and not really uh, integrating them quite as well. If you think about it, those team members that come from outside your company, they're more than likely going to be working with you for some period of time. And they're going to develop great knowledge about your company and your business. And so it's really important to spend time getting them aligned, having them be motivated. And even though you're not necessarily paying their salary or benefits directly, uh, it's really important to work on helping them help you. When you think about cloud being the, you know, everybody's access, it used to be, you know, you had to have the budget to afford the database, right? You had to buy the different technology, but I mean, it has, it has democratized, you know, the access to these technologies. So really, it, I, I agree, teams are going to be the strategic position, right? They're, they're going to be the difference maker, how you leverage that, how you build on that. I also think it's very interesting, the concept of, you know, Microsoft changed the way that it interacts with its contractors, right? It, it used to treat them more as that disposable unit of work. And uh, Satya's approach has been to get them involved in the vision setting and being part of the mission and and I think that's part of like what is his genius and what has really turned around Microsoft, to your point. 
But I think there's a big challenge for a lot of organizations because most companies are working with a, a lot of various external relationships, right? They're managing those relationships. They're managing, you know, external resources. You know, how do you make it work? Yeah, I think that's, it's a great point. And I think there's probably two dimensions I would think about it. One is just the culture you cultivate around respect for all team members and really valuing all the people, regardless of which organization they might come from. But if you think about all the vendors that you have, there's just no way that you can spend equal time with your technology partners. And most companies have some kind of partner categorization framework that they use uh, to differentiate who are their most strategic suppliers, who are their critical uh, suppliers, and who are their more commodity suppliers. And what we've done in the past is we've invested significantly more time with those most strategic of partners. So really understanding who those partners are for you is, is really important. And then you can actively integrate them. And so, for example, you can spend more time sharing your strategic direction. You can share your annual goals. A lot of times companies don't share their goals with their uh, partners and identify very specific and tangible ways you can innovate uh, together. And again, it comes down to people. So usually to help bridge organizations together, it's helpful to have like a multi-level relational model between the organizations. So typically you'd have a very senior executive sponsor from both organizations that are really overseeing the health and the strategy that they're collaborating on. And then you'd have other managers who would be involved in the day-to-day relationship who would also be advocates for building a strong partnership and relationship. You know, I think of uh, experience that we had with our uh, one of our offshore providers who were based in India, and we would periodically go there as a leadership team to spend time with their leadership team, meet many of their team members, share our goals and our direction as a company with them, get feedback about how things are working, and really see firsthand how we could improve the collaboration. And for some of our most strategic providers, we would also spend just a lot of time around access. And access, I think, is is a really important thing. Sometimes people will hold what they're doing close to the vest, but I think very powerful things can happen when you create that transparency between organizations. And so we would give pretty broad access to leadership at many parts of the company to, uh, to our technology providers so that they can understand what we were trying to accomplish. Uh, but in exchange for that access, we would expect basically top-tier commercial pricing and terms And we would expect access to their thought leaders and greater visibility to industry best practices. And this really ended up being, I think, beneficial for both organizations that I'll say shortened the process to come to a joint project or initiative together and made it way more efficient. And that created uh, value for both sides of the equation. That sounds like a a real partnership as a person who's been a vendor for many organizations. It it seems to be that is the desire everyone has is to have a real partnership with their vendor, right? Shared fate. From your perspective, I think there's a lot of people, a lot of listeners, they're, they're in the situation and there's a lot of fear of giving people that kind of access or that type of knowledge. And there's a reason why people keep things close to their vest. There's got to be a situation where somebody has betrayed that trust. That's a good question. I'm not sure that there's ever been really a betrayal of trust, but I think when we've worked in this way, we started out small. We would try to focus on a couple of partners first. We didn't try to do it with all of them all at the same time. It grew from individual relationships where there were specific people that were appointed on both sides of the organization to help champion this and to help usher it through. Things got, I'll say, very contentious 
at negotiation time when it came time for contracts and pricing. And that's when both sides of the organizations would really, I think, get very uncomfortable. But once you smoothed that out and you got through that, then it was much easier for work to flow. And actually, it was a big relief to have most of the commercial things kind of ironed out because you didn't have to revisit that with every project. You could focus more on what are you trying to accomplish? What's the best way to get there? And we would periodically scorecard those relationships and have an open dialogue about what was actually happening and what could we do better uh, to make sure that if there were underlying issues that people felt uncomfortable with or were disappointed with in both directions, that you could talk about those things and improve them. And again, you can't do this with all of your partners, so you have to be selective and you have to have, I'll say, leadership that are willing to extend trust in the first place. Do you have any suggestions of actions that leaders can take on their own? Yeah, I have a, a couple thoughts on that. And, you know, this framework that I mentioned, it wasn't something that I came up with on my own. It was something that was introduced uh, to me th- through an HR function at one of the companies that I worked at. And so I think the HR partnership is, is really important. So in one company, the HR team was trained in that framework. They basically were sharing it with all of the functional leaders of the company and helping them to cascade it down into their teams. Uh, in another case, the technology group was more of an early adopter. And so we really introduced that framework with HR and partnered with HR on using that within our uh, team first. But I think in the end, the framework itself is, is not that important in terms of which specific one you're using. It's really more about this commitment of a team to work together, to evaluate how they're doing and being willing uh, to periodically assess and then being willing to change. And I would encourage people to talk with their HR team about how to work together on something like this. It's a lot of fun. And if people are interested in organizational design, development and productivity, usually you'll find people who are very interested in trying to do this with you. And I might suggest just a few books uh, to read if you haven't read them already. Uh, the first one is The Speed of Trust by Stephen Covey. I mentioned trust being really important earlier. And the core idea of this book is that trust or the lack of trust either ends up being an accelerator or the friction in an organization. Uh, and you can move much more quickly and more effectively if you can build high trust environments. And then the second book I might suggest to people is The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. I think this has been a fairly popular book by Patrick Lencioni. It's a good model for thinking about what is important in good teamwork. And it has uh, an excellent workbook uh, that goes with it that you can use to apply some exercises with your own team. Yeah, those are both great recommendations. They're both great books. The, uh, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, we reread as a leadership team every year. As a good reminder, because I think we we all kind of start falling into our own natural habits sometimes, and it's a good reminder that like these are the things that are going to stop us from getting to that next level, you know. And and to think in teams, right? You know, it's interesting when I talk to people about what's the best team you've ever been on, and people talk about things about in high school or college, or they haven't been on a team in a professional situation. That's one of the biggest challenges when when human beings are left to organize on their own, we naturally fall into a team structure. And then when we go to corporate structures, we start following, you know, these charts, right? Where it's like this person reports to that person. And it's like, well, where does the teaming go on? But I see, I see a lot more of that where people are seeing the value of teams and the strength of teams. Yeah. If I could just add to that, I was thinking about some of the great teams where we've integrated external partners together. And one of the factors that when we've made a decision about who to work with has often been the chemistry that we can see in the early stage before we've made the decision to pick one or the other. 
because when things get tough on a project and they always get tough, the teams that work well together are going to be more successful and they're going to work through it. And so that chemistry, I think, is so important. And, you know, people tend to undervaluate chemistry and will, you know, preference other things, maybe price or personal relationships or other factors that um, may not be the most important things for the success of the team. We have a new partner that we're going to be working with this week. And we were talking about how getting started. I said, well, we should have a happy hour with both teams. That should be, we're not even going to have like a strategy meeting. We're going to find out, can we gel as teams? get some pizza, get a couple of drinks, see if it, if people connect. If it does, let's move forward. If it doesn't, it is, it's odd how relationships are built in our personal lives and then how relationships are built in our professional lives. And I think maybe that's one of the walls we got to tear down is that this concept of we're going to put this shield up and we're going to protect ourselves and, and we're going to protect ourselves from success is what we end up doing more times than not. And Eric, you know, you've given us a lot to think about in terms of team dynamics, but I'm curious about culture. What are your thoughts about actually creating a strong culture? Yeah. um, Yeah. We've been kind of talking about culture in a lot of different ways here today. And, you know, I've been fortunate to work with a lot of different organizations and see a lot of different cultures and maybe it'd be good just to define what we mean by culture. And for me, it's about really the kind of the beliefs of the organization and how things get done, how decisions are made and how people treat each other. You know, culture shows up in a lot of different ways at different companies. So some may have a culture that's very reflective of the philosophies of its founder. Others might be maybe a little bit more in tune with their industry. So if you think of healthcare organizations tend to be very patient-centric, but no matter what, there's always a culture at a company. And what really matters is whether leaders cultivate that culture and use it as a really a way to amplify the results of their teams, or if it's something that just kind of casually evolves and is not necessarily uh, cultivated in a way that creates you know, meaning and impact uh, for the whole organization. The uh, best example I have experienced in my career has been the opportunity to spin off a major division of the company I was part of and create a new public company. When we did that, it was important to establish a culture that was really distinct from the parent organization and reflected the values of an industry leader in the biopharmaceutical business. And we had to do this on a fairly accelerated and focused uh, timeframe. And so there were resources that were assigned to defining and communicating the culture. This work stream included communicating it to all employees and most importantly, providing resources to managers to help build that culture. And so as leaders, we would conduct exercises with our teams to really talk about the new culture and most importantly, to reflect on how well we're doing with it. This really allowed us to empower employees to talk about disconnects between what we're saying we want the culture to be and what they actually experience. I think that was so important because it helped remove barriers or work practices that are counter to the goals of the company. And I think our team members really enjoyed those activities because it gave them to a voice to the many things that are often frustrating or annoying to them or things that are sending different signals than what you're really trying to do as an organization. It led to opportunities for them to work more autonomously, to be more empowered in their work, to be able to move at a faster pace and to be more effective. And again, I don't think most companies have a framework and tools that are quite like that. And I think it made all the difference in terms of results and outcomes and performance. But just as important, I think it really drove employee satisfaction and engagement and made it a much better place to work. And so I think it's really important for leaders to think about the culture they want 
to define that, to communicate it, and then actively work to create that culture. Culture is such an important part from my perspective, having worked at large organizations that I think didn't have honest cultures. There was the things that they said, and then there were the things that they did. When there's that disconnect, that I hate to use a word lie, but it's just, it's a falsehood. You know, I think that's where I think a lot of people get scared to do culture because they're afraid they're not going to do it right. And it's going to accelerate discomfort, friction, stressors. And I, I think that's 100% right. It will. But I also think it's the thing that helps take it to the next level. When you were going through this process with reinforcing the culture that you wanted it to have, there's the aspirational culture, and then there's the actual culture. And part of that challenge is to engage the group that is really buying into the culture while dealing with some of the folks that that's not the tribe that they want to be part of. You know, what are some of the lessons that you learned while going through that process? Yeah, I mean, you bring up a great point around it's not that easy. It's easy to say, but it's hard to do. And, you know, we use the culture framework in a lot of ways. And one of the ways we used it was around the recruitment and selection of, of new employees. And so it was an important part of communicating what the expectations were for people joining the company. And we used it as a criteria and a filter to hopefully select people that would be a right fit with what the organization wanted to accomplish. I think a simple action that people can take in any organization around sensing where they are with culture and changing it is creating open dialogues with small groups of employees that don't directly report to you and get feedback from them. It's a very simple activity. You might take it for granted, but just ask, asking them, how are things going? What can I do to help you? What are the things that are frustrating to you? And creating that dialogue that creates the feedback loop then for the disconnects that you kind of talked about that often exist in companies. And if you are able to take a few things out of those sessions and take some action on them, that can build confidence in future discussions and getting more feedback around that. And it can also be a really important vehicle for you to work with your leadership team or the, your peers in the organization to talk about some of the things that you're seeing and to bring to light some of those things that are hard to talk about, but are really important to get on the table and not let that disconnect exist. So how do you build that trust? What did you do to create trust right from the jump where people knew that they could come to you with their concerns or their frustrations or their pains? Well, some of that probably is just how you communicate to be open uh, about what you're trying to accomplish and the issues and the goals that you have uh, for the organization. But I think a lot of it comes down to the individual interactions that you have with people, talking to them one-on-one -on -one, for them to see you as more than a position for them to see you as someone who cares about what they're doing, that takes an interest in what they're working on, and to ask good questions of people and to sometimes pull it out of them in terms of the things that you know they want to say but aren't saying. A lot of times you can say, it's okay. You know, it's better to talk about it. I would always say to people, you know, good news runs to the corner office really fast. Bad news is hiding in a closet under a rock. Nobody wants to tell you about it. Um, but that's actually the stuff that you need to know more than the good news. And so I would try to encourage people to just tell it like it is, and then we can do something hopefully constructive about it. My favorite with good news, bad news is uh, victory has many fathers and failures an orphan. That's a great one. But I also think the leadership too often has that pie in the sky of like, I don't want to hear bad news, right? Don't bring it to me. They're going to shoot the messenger. I think that's where the culture breakdown begins, where that communication is lost because they've seen the other brave soldier move forward and suffer the consequences of being the messenger. 
I think that's probably why it's important to handle failure well, to try to treat it as a learning experience. And if there wasn't malicious activity going on or criminal activity going on, that you need to have an organization that learns from itself and is willing to be open about what it's doing well and what it's not doing well so that it can get better every time. You hear story after story of mistakes that have happened in organizations that were costly, but it ended up leading to maybe something that was an amazing breakthrough for them. And it's because they were willing to view you know, mistakes as a learning process rather than a complete failure. So thank you for sharing that, Eric. And as you know, we're in a period of the lowest unemployment in nearly 50 years and talent is very scarce. So what are your thoughts about ways to retain great people? I think it really comes down to whether your employees feel they're making a difference, that they're valued, and that they're growing as a professional. And so with this in mind, I think it's really important to reinforce the value that's created by your company and what it is about your mission that's important and how your team members contribute to that so that they can see that directly through what they're doing. And of course, recognition of your individual team members is really important. And that can be everything through structured recognition programs uh, to just taking time to talk to individual people and personally saying thank you to them so that they know that you care about them and, and the work that they're doing. And then, of course, you know, team members want to keep learning and growing. And so you should be consciously creating opportunities for people to rotate to new positions to learn new skills, to take on new challenges and keep pushing them to be the best that they can be. And we know you've had an opportunity to work as a leader in in multiple companies. So curious what advice you have for people that aspire to leadership positions. I think it's important for aspiring leaders to really acquire many different skills and experiences over their career. This most likely is going to mean rotating into different roles and taking lateral moves, which isn't always the first thing that people are thinking about when they're aspiring to leadership. Usually the question is, how can I move up as fast as possible? Kind of a framework that I've used to help facilitate that discussion and show people how to build that depth was a model that had three dimensions like a cube. And on this cube, the three dimensions were one was uh, technical and functional skills, which is usually most well-known to individual team members and something that I think people kind of intuitively understand. The other is scale and complexity of roles. Uh, so that might be, is it a global role versus within a country? How large was the team or budget? Those kinds of dimensions. And then the third dimension, which most people don't necessarily think about, but I think is really important, is what kinds of different business situations have you been immersed in? And so this could include a lot of challenging scenarios like turning around a project or a team that was in trouble launching a completely new product or service, working in a new culture, like a different country, for example, things that stretch you in a, in a different way. I found that the strongest leaders are typically really well-rounded and have experience in all of these types of dimensions. And they've essentially been filling up that leadership cube that I've described over their career through each assignment or job rotation that they've had. And so the advice I would give to people is to examine what skills and experience do they still need to gain to make them that well-rounded leader so that they can offer the best depth to their team and to their organization. Eric, I got to tell you, that was a breath of fresh air for a guy who later on in life realized, I'm not the person who's going to go deep. I'm going to go wide, right? I'm a, I'm a professional generalist, right? I think most entrepreneurs are. We're, we're great at like learning enough to be dangerous and go break things. And to think that there is actually 
a strategy because I think I operated when I was in the corporate world that you're right. I needed to focus on becoming a technical expert and that was not something that I enjoyed. The challenge that I, I would think a lot of people have is like, you know, this requires a really long vision of a personal plan of this is where I'm trying to get to and I need to fill gaps to get there. If you were talking to one of your folks right now and you were going to coach them on the idea that like, you don't need to be a technical fellow, right? You should go do some sales and marketing. It's like, I have a CS degree. And it's like, exactly. Do you have an engineering degree? You should go do marketing. You know, what are some of the things that you would say to that person? That's a good, good question. Actually, there's probably two things I'd like to say on that. One is, first of all, some people feel they need to be in leadership roles and actually it may not be what's best for them and what they really want to do. I think it's important for people to recognize that there's so many different roles that people can play and leadership is not the end all be all. But for those who do want to be leaders, I think it's really important for them to also start with the mindset of a leader is there to serve the organization. It's not about accumulating power and prestige. Like you need to come in with a mindset that you are there to help your team, to help the organization. If you look at things from that point of view, I think you will be more open to taking a lot of different challenges. One, because you're probably helping the organization by taking one of those lateral moves, because it's probably good for the company as well as for you. And two, to think about you know really creating that well-rounded experience. And I think if people can't really get their arms around that really essential element of serving the organization then you know maybe it's time to slow down a little bit on sort of the leadership aspirations and to think about why you're really trying to do it. But I, I think most people like new challenges. Often people will be afraid of rotations for fear of being able to come back to something else. And so I think you need to be supportive and telling people that you are there to help them grow. And regardless of what happens, there's going to be a good opportunity for them whether they're good at what they're doing next or not. And if you think about it, most of the time, the people that are getting those opportunities are generally high performance or high potential individuals. And so you can be pretty confident that they're going to have a great role, whether or not this next role is the best role for them. Well, I think that's awesome. I hope everybody got as much out of that as I did, because I think that's fantastic, especially when you think about how little most organizations will invest in actually developing leaders or providing the opportunities to develop leaders by giving them new opportunities to create you know, a more well-rounded person. That, I'm going to have to think about that one for a while, because I love it. Uh, we kind of ran out of time, right? Obviously, things move faster when we're having fun. But I, I wanted to say, Eric, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. It's been awesome. We also wanted to thank our listeners. We really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us and listen to the podcast today. Yes. And if you'd like to receive new podcasts as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, this episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears, Inc. and produced by Dante32. 